You are Locked On Women's Basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Locked On Women's Basketball. I'm your host, Howard Megdahl, reminding you, you can follow us on Twitter at Locked On WBB. Go ahead and like us on Facebook, Locked On Women's Basketball, or make sure to subscribe to us using iTunes or your podcast listen of choice. Would urge you to go ahead and review us if you could. If you liked the show, it'll drive us up the charts and make sure that more people hear about both the show and women's basketball as a whole, which is something I'm sure is important to you, important to me as well. And someone else it's important to is a guest I am honored to have. Bracketology is defined in the dictionary. Uh, I'm not going to even finish that sentence. That is the sentence because bracketology is now officially in the dictionary. And Charlie Cream, who's with us, is a big reason why. Charlie were you part of the lobbying effort to make that happen? That caught me as big a surprise as, as it did probably to anyone. Uh, I have to give all that kind of credit to Joe Lenardi. I, I refer to him as the godfather of bracketology. Really the, uh, the, the godfather, the father, uh, the, the doctor who saw its birth uh, in the room at the time. Um, so all credit to Joe on, on the fact that bracketology has gotten to be such a household name and the fact that it, it's very it, it's it's flattering in an indirect sense to me that it's in the dictionary but as i said that's that's really all due to joe's efforts and work and uh i'm just happy to be along for the ride well my understanding is you're you're a bit too modest as it relates to that now i am a huge fan of uh joe uh both as a person and in terms of the work he does but take me through because my understanding is that you and joe were the ones helping to create this science out of nothing and you're right that that joe now actually teaches a course on bracketology at st joe's and uh, that's something that uh, i enjoy and i think speaks well of the work that you did but what was the beginning process like that like to create bracketology in your world well it was it was born out of i did work with joe uh, for a number of years uh, in the philadelphia area uh, because he's been at st joe's for seemingly forever and it was it was born out of our work with Blue Ribbon College Basketball Yearbook. Mm-hmm. Some people might remember before we had the internet, we we had to uh, read about our college basketball in hard copy magazines, <laughs> books, and Blue Ribbon College Basketball Yearbook was one that didn't have any pictures. It uh, didn't have uh, there was no there was no fluff to it. It was hardcore. It was meant for the hardcore fan. It was hardcore information, and it was. 300 plus pages of preseason information as the interest in the tournament as it relates to the entire college basketball season began to grow joe thought it would be nice if we could add something to the blue ribbon universe and crank out a a smaller version of the book that previewed the tournament but of course anybody familiar with how newspapers or magazines or or things are published it it takes a little bit of time to go from stuff that you would type in on your computer to an actual physical copy of, 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 a, of a piece of material that you could read and digest. And with the tournament not being announced till uh, Sunday and the game starting on Thursday, it didn't, didn't give a lot of time for those kinds of things to happen. Mm-hmm. And one year, and we, you know, we tried to get ahead of the game, obviously, and write about each team that we thought would be in the, in the tournament. And this, of course, I should preface it by saying this was the men's tournament at the time, mm-hmm. and exclusively the men's tournament. And, and we're talking the mid-1990s, correct? This is, yeah. This We're talking, um, I think, 
I want to say the exact year when I started working with Joe was the um, probably the '93 season. Mm-hmm. But this this part of it didn't evolve until probably '94 or '95. Um, the second year that we did it, uh, we got burned, so to speak, by Santa Clara and Manhattan both being selected by the committee as at-large teams, something we didn't anticipate and didn't have prepared. So here it is. The, the selection show concludes at uh, 7 p.m. Eastern time. And this, the deadline for all of our copy had to be in by that evening in order to get the get it printed and get it in people's hands by Tuesday to make it actually something that would be relevant to anybody that wanted time to read it before Thursday's noon tip-off. Sure. So he, so that's when Joe said, this is never going to happen again. I need to be more in tune with how these teams are selected and uh, be even more ahead of the game than we were. So that's really the, the, the reason Bracketology was created out of necessity to make sure that this publication for Blue Ribbon was uh, something that was timely for people. We really scrambled that Sunday night to get it done, and Joe just didn't want to see that happen again. So, so in, then, in essence, Steve Nash is responsible you know what? Bracketology <laughs> in a fundamental way. In a, in a yes, in an indirect sort of, uh, um, and some, something. If you, if you said that sentence to him, he would probably look at you like you were from another planet. But yes, in a sense, Steve Nash has a lot to do with why bracketology was born. That's and then, true. and then Joe just uh, started to learn more about the process, and and then he just kind of just kept taking it to the next level. He created it. He, he once the internet did blossom. He decided that this was interesting content that was more than just for a few days out of the year, and he created his own website called it Bracketology.net, I think, back then. And then um, when ESPN discovered it, liked it, brought him out, bought him out, brought him on board, and that's really when it blew up. Yeah, and and so from your end of things, that ESPN asked you about a decade ago, if, if memory serves, to uh, – serve on the women's side at, at that time you were no longer working with joe but what was that process like specifically what did you learn immediately and and since over the years about any differences between the way in which the women's tournament is selected and the way in which the men's tournament is selected well obviously there's some fundamental differences in the structure of the tournament and the, and the men's tournament has changed over the years and obviously adding the four teams and becoming a 68 team field but in terms of the, the process itself that the committees respectively go through, it's fairly similar. Um, there's still there's a lot of data uh, for both that are used, and there's a, a lot of the, a lot of committee member eyeballs on games that's still used. And in case of Joe and myself, it's our two eyeballs watching as many games as we can get. Uh, get to a TV, a computer um, on, and then, of course, trying to digest all the numbers and things like that out there. And then using historical, and again, from Joe and myself perspective, using historical leanings toward, of the, what the committees have done mm-hmm. to kind of get an idea what they might do going forward. Um, so that in terms of the, the process of, you know, it's kind of a three-pronged situation, the, going through and picking the teams, then going through and ranking the teams, one through, in the case of the women's field, one through 64, and then placing the teams in the bracket. And that, 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 that isn't any different. And that's one of the reasons why that when ESPN brought me on board to be their women's college basketball bracketologist, 
having learned what Joe was learning about in the very beginning days about how this process worked, it became very easy for me to kind of slide in and, and do it because I had a real grasp on it. Uh, at the time, not many people really did. It was because I was with him and worked so closely with him. Um, at the time, we may have been a, a couple of the, uh, maybe a handful of people that really kind of knew the system or got the system. Right. And I think a lot of people do now. I think it's a lot more transparent. It's become that way. And there's just a lot more attention to it. So a lot more people have learned and understand it. And and so particular to the women's side of things, for your process, how many games are you watching a week? And I, I guess a different way of asking this is, here we are about midway through the season in terms of games played, but we're at the very beginning of conference play. So you look at something like RPI and Maryland is – low 20 or low 30s high 20s depending on the week you have them as a number one seed uh which i'm not taking issue with having seen maryland up close uh, i think they absolutely deserve that but what percentage wise would you estimate is eyeballs at this point and what percentage of it is numbers and then how does that sort of shift over the course of the season for you well that's i think that's probably the best example right now anyway of of that and the numbers don't always tell the whole story. And I think the numbers, as more games are played, the numbers start to probably more accurately reflect what our eyes tell us. Mm-hmm. So earlier in the season when there's, there's not a, a depth of information, a.k.a. games played, the numbers can kind of be all over the map. But um, those things kind of push together a little bit more. Not, not, that, they're, not that they're crazy different now there there are some there are anomalies and the anomalies get smaller and shorter as the season progresses and games are accumulated uh maryland would be the best example of that right now every year we seem to have uh, one or two even by the end of the season where a team's rpi is high maybe even high but our eyes tell us this team really is not a top eight top 10 type team mm-hmm. and, and and that's where the balance of it comes in that's why watching it watching all the games matters that's why when fans say well how can this how can so-and-so team be a seven seed when their rpi is 16 that doesn't make sense well because it's not a direct mathematical equivalency mm-hmm. there's there's ba- there's basketball mind applied to it as well um and as i said the season goes forward and we start to see fewer and fewer of these anomalies. Another example would be up until last night, Georgetown was a top 10 RPI team. Right. They were in, I think they were eighth. Well, they lost last night, and their RPI plummeted into the 30s. And, well, lost by 21 to Villanova, if memory serves. Exactly, and because they also lost to a team who had, has not had a particularly good season. Right. And and that so that that's sort of that that's a prime example of a very quick evening out, so to speak, of the numbers and what we know our eyes tell us about their a certain team's ability on the court. So, I mean, in terms of Maryland, it's the difference between the lack of credit RPIs and to give them for a close loss to UConn and what you were able to see them do down in College Park, right? Yes, uh, I think that's probably the best way to put it. It's it's you know you're watching you're watching this team play. The reason their RPI is a little lower is because they had a, they had a couple of non conference games that weren't 
and this is where the scheduling thing comes in, and I have this discussion with people all the time, but they, they played a couple of really bad teams, mm-hmm. RPIs in, in the high 200s into the 300s, and that's going to sink your number down until you have a, a chance to balance that out with a number of games within the top 100 and the top 50. Um, the key to probably to an RPI is that you just don't want to play a lot of those or any of those really bad teams. And then, but you don't want to play too many of the real good ones where you're going to lose a bunch of games. So Maryland's maybe their non-conference schedule did have some quality in it. It had a little bit of imbalance in what that quality looked like and which is why their RPI is not among the top five or six, even though I think, at least I do, and I think a lot of people recognize them as a top you know, four team in, in, in the case of the latest bracketology. Yeah, no question about it. And the flip side of that, of course, is the Pac-12. It was interesting to me, you had back in December, 10 teams from the Pac-12 making the tournament. You have it at nine now, which would tie the record set by the SEC last year. They have, I believe, 11 teams in the top 80 in RPI. Now, I know there was a conference-wide effort made to play more of a non-conference schedule. But is that why you have as many teams as highly rated as you do for the Pac-12 this year? Or is it more what you've been able to see so far out of those teams, especially some of those teams that we didn't necessarily expect to be, let's say, as good as they were last year in Oregon State's case, or even uh, as good as being worthy of tournament consideration as, let's say, a Colorado or a Utah? It, well, it's a, again, it's it's the same as it goes at the end of the season. It's sort of a combination of both, um, because scheduling is a factor, and the and the scheduling often is reflected in the numbers. So, the, the, as you said, the Pac-12 has made a concerted effort amongst all its coaches to schedule better. Schedule in a way I I sort of just described is uh, avoid those two fifty RPI type teams. Mm-hmm. Because you don't know absolutely from year to year who's going to be real bad, but you you, you kind of have an idea of maybe the the, the competition that you you don't want to schedule to avoid so those kinds of numbers, and that it is affected. They they have it's improved. Teams within the conference have improved. Here's a league where it used to be an afterthought. Stanford was going to win the league. There would be a couple other good teams, and then the the bottom half of the league was easy pickings. Well. The talent level has improved. Um, uh, Oregon's a perfect example. Example: Kelly Graves has gotten there. He's, and they're not. They're not actually one of the the nine teams in the field. But mm-hmm. the, the talent level and their ability to compete on a higher level is much different than it was five, six, seven years ago. Um, there's been a huge upgrade in Colorado's program because they've had to moving <clears throat> to a more competitive conference like the Pac-12. I mean, they were being in the Big 12 was super competitive too, but they, they seem to have reacted better being in the Pac-12 than they did in the Big 12. And Colorado's not a program that's always been down. It's had good years and it's had some bad years, but we're starting to see a little bit higher level of talent there. And I think that's really what it is. It's, so it wasn't necessarily just, hey, let's schedule better, everybody. But they're all, they all seem to be recruiting better. And I think, that, I think you can see that the Pac-12 network uh, helps a lot. I could sit on my computer and I can watch two or three Pac-12 games sometimes at, at the same time and get a good look at these teams. And, and by doing that, I've seen a level of talent increase through, you know, throughout the conference. There's, there are very few 
gimme games in the Pac-12 these days anymore. And that's that's only going to help them going forward as they play each other in conference. No question. Do you see the Pac-12 as the best conference in college basketball this year? ACC is obviously right there. You have eight teams right now from the ACC making the tournament, seven out of the SEC. But is the Pac-12 number one in your eyes? I think it's the deepest. I think evaluating the conferences – is you can kind of look at a couple different different ways. I think the Pac-12 is the deepest. As I said, I don't think there are many easy outs for any of the top teams in the league. Mm-hmm. But I think at the very, very top, the ACC might be slightly better. I, I, there were six teams among the top 16 in my last bracketology from ACC. That's that that's pretty incredible. Uh, you know, that's more than a quarter of the teams from the league – could be hosting games when come tournament time if that if that were somehow you know able to, to hold. Um, so it depends on how are you how are you looking at it. I, I would call the Pac-12 the deepest league. I might not necessarily. It's it's very close. It's a paper thin difference if you were to say the ACC might be better because at the top or the top half has is slightly better. Now in terms of. Another parallel between how the men's brackets and women's brackets work. We heard this week that the men's bracket is going to take Coach K and his absence into consideration. You have DePaul right now as a seven. I'm wondering whether you are doing that taking Jessica January's injury into account and how you go about figuring that out because that is inherently a a subjective thing and you're trying to essentially intuit the will of a committee of people rather than looking at numbers or even talent level on the floor. Right. That certainly was something I thought a lot about with DePaul in this latest uh, bracket projection. It, it's it's tricky because I can't. the committee has, when they do this thing for real, they have the entire body of work. So they will have been able to see DePaul with January and see, them, see DePaul without January. I'm because it's a projection and it's, I'm, I'm just, I'm basically, I'm trying to take a snapshot of today. I didn't, I only had really one full game of, of her not playing to see and they, and they won that game, right. but they didn't play particularly well in it. Um, and I have to kind of maybe make a couple of assumptions, but, but essentially what I did in, in DePaul's case, this, this time this is what I do with injuries as they happen. I just kind of look at the team the way, the way they are. The way what they've done up to that point, performance-wise, because you'll hear from the committee that um, making the tournament is, and this is this is really has more application to the end of the year. But making the tournament is your entire body of work, your performance. Where you get seated has more to do with what you are today. So, I, I guess that goes to your to your question. DePaul was a I was a seven seed. Um, a lot of that actually had to do with. Uh, in terms of maybe them dropping a little bit was not fully the January injury, but the fact that they lost to Temple and that they didn't play what I would consider particularly well in their game against Providence. And I thought, okay, well, you know, this, this is what, this is the way they're playing now. This is a snapshot of today. So I'm not, I can't evaluate the Paul as maybe as, earnestly or as, as good as they had been and it wasn't necessarily all due to the injury but it had it had to do with the actual performance and the performance was at least in the Providence game impacted by her absence right no question uh, uh, there are two others that I have 
in mind at uh, the bottom of the tournament or, or uh, out as of now. One is, uh, talk about the Atlantic 10. I know you have George Washington essentially as the default, uh, as the winner of the A-10, but the A-10 winner as an 11 seed right now. And I'm curious for a team like St. Louis, who uh, went uh, to the NIT last year, has a real good quality non-conference win, uh, beaten Missouri, but is playing in a conference where it's sort of the flip side of the Pac-12, where they had 11 of the top 80 in RPI. Well, the leader in RPI in the A-10 right now is GW at 84. And St. Louis is, of course, at 161. How does a team like St. Louis recover from that? And are you able to see enough, and will the committee be able to see enough, that if St. Louis continues to excel the way they did against Missouri, the way they had a big uh, lopsided win over George Mason last night, uh, with the players like Jackie Kemp and Sadie Stepanovich. Uh, is there a means for a team like that to earn an at-large bid? I think there is. It's they they are in kind of a position where they they probably will need to kind of dominate the league. Um, you know, not not go, you know, not go. I don't know. 12 and I'm trying to think of the, uh, the 18 games. So they, they've got to, they've got to go like 16 wins, probably something like that in the league because the league is down. Um, and that, I think that would be, there, there's definitely going to be opportunity for them to rise in the numbers, but the, the Atlantic 10 is a great example of kind of a bigger issue. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little about the Atlantic 10 and that, and that this year, it's not going to be a good year for the mid-majors, if, if, um, yeah. even if we want to use that terminology more and throw the Atlantic 10 into that bucket of, of mid-majors. There's, there, there's, not much to, there's not much to look at in terms of at-large bids. You, the suggestion right now, if anybody from a mid-major league is listening, and includes the Atlantic 10, win the tournament. <laughs> <laughs> because because there wasn't, there's nothing yeah. – there's, there's very little. I shouldn't say nothing. There's very little to point to in the, in the non-conference season that stands out as, okay, this is – this is a team that's that separated itself with a with a good win here or or a two two good wins there that you can usually point to and talk about in terms of of teams being in the mix at the end of the year. Gonzaga uh, at, in the WCC did have actually two real solid non conference wins, yeah. uh, Stanford and Northwestern, and then have basically fallen on their face to start the WCC season, which puts them. Very puts a team like Gonzaga in the in the conference in general very much against the uh, up against the eight ball. Um, I think St. Louis in GW. Uh, I, th- I think those teams will have a chance. As you said, St. Louis does have a good non conference win, but they also have uh, probably too many overall losses in the non conference to be able to you know, be able to point to something and say, Hey, we should be in because, you know, we, we did this or we did that. The, the, the you almost have to, in a non-con in a, in a mid-major league, you almost have to come out of the non-conference and I, putting absolute numbers on it is difficult because it's, it, it doesn't work that way, but right. you almost have to come out with, you know, maybe just two losses and, and you've, Maybe and you've got to have a win in there to point to. Maybe preferably a couple of wins, and they don't have to be. They don't have to be these monstrous upsets. They just have to be like St. Louis beating in Missouri, a solid win out of the conference. And then you have to make sure you don't stumble a lot in the in in your conference season. So I, St. Louis's overall number might not be great at the end of the year in terms of RPI or or, or any kind of strength metric you want to use. But if they do fairly dominate the league, 
and then maybe trip up in the finals of the A-10 tournament. I, I think a team like St. Louis would still certainly have a shot. But it, with an RPI in the 160s at this point, their their task becomes a lot greater. Well, so I'm going to take you to the other end of things. Same rough question, but it uh, relates to the Ivy League. So I have a lifelong dream on both the men's and women's side of a two-bid Ivy. Uh, it's never happened. It hasn't come to pass yet, but this might be the year you're going to be able to tell me a lot better than I would a year where there is a conference tournament for the first time in the Ivy League and you have in Harvard a team that as of right now has an RPI of 29 has a win at Kansas has a win at home over Temple if Harvard can find its way through the Ivy League unbeaten or close to unbeaten but lose in the championship game to one of the other Ivy League teams, you know, Penn or Princeton, for instance, do we think that there is a possibility of a two-bid Ivy, or does my dream die once again? Uh, well, I, no, I think, there's, uh, I think there's a possibility, but basically the scenario you laid out. But don't forget, last year they did get two teams in. Or uh, rather, Penn, Penn and Princeton did both make the tournament last year. Yes. So, so we have this um, – a, a new precedent has been set, and, and I think Ivy League is set up uh, to do it again. I, I, it's so ironic that they got the two teams in last year, in the last year, without a conference tournament. Yes. Um, but the scenario you, you laid out, I think, is 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 a, a very reasonable way. Harvard's metrics look good. I've I've seen Harvard play a couple of times. I was really impressed with their athleticism, their ability to compete. I think they, they do and can compete on a, on a bigger level, on a, on a higher stage. They've, they've shown it in, in, actual, in actual results, having won, won all but one of their games. So I, I would think, yes, this very well could happen. Again. Harvard, I, there, there are very, as I said before, bad year for mid-majors. There are very few that really are you can put on the list right now of, of potential at-large bid-type teams. Harvard would be on that list. Harvard would be one of the few that would be on that list. So, you know, it's one of those weird things if you work in a league office, but your your, your best case scenario for the league as a whole is to have that scenario play out that you have a team that maybe dominates the league and and does really well in the non-conference, but doesn't doesn't somehow win the conference tournament, and then you, you could get two teams in. The WCC last year is a perfect example. If BYU had won the championship game, that was a one-bid league. Mm-hmm. But BYU was had, had put together a resume beating Texas A&M, for instance, that was that put them solidly in the field. And then in a very hotly contested close game in the WCC championship game, San Francisco upsets BYU, and the league gets to be a multi-bid league last year. And that would be that could be the Ivy League this year. And and just to that end. Uh, I I know that what we saw in past years is conferences and particular teams that play well one year would sometimes have a carryover to the next year. When you look at what uh, Penn was able to do against Washington that went on to the Final Four, does that affect how the Ivy League is respected, or is that very specific to Penn uh, year after year? That's that's pretty specific to Penn, and, and and there's and in terms of the committee's evaluation, there's really no carryover. There isn't any carryover at all. It's mm-hmm. it's it's really kind of putting putting the blinders on to 2016-17 season only. Uh, it 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 does. It might just from a human element 
it does make you kind of maybe watch that league a little bit more closely. But but the committee is the way it's designed is everybody is assigned to a league year to year. So if you're assigned to the Ivy, you're watching the Ivy a lot, no matter what, no matter who did well last year or who you think's going to do well coming into a new season. So you're locked. You're, that's one of the leagues you're locked in on regardless. So uh, it, it doesn't have, it doesn't really have any direct carryover only from a human element. Now, from my perspective, I might pay a little more attention. Okay. Is this a league on the rise in terms of talent level, much like we talked about with the PAC 12. And, and so I, I, I might maybe shift my attention a little bit more. Okay. I've got to pay a little bit more attention to what's going on here. And, and then that'll, that'll, it doesn't really change my evaluation, but it, it just has my, you know, my eyebrows raise a little bit when you get, when you get a situation like we had last year and, and it moves into the following year. Cause certain leagues from a, from an uh, you know evaluation and, and a time element that as I as I put this together on a every, on a Sunday, you know every other week right now and it'll be start to be weekly in, in a couple of weeks. Um, certain leagues you just from history you know and 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 and, and kind of the, the level of performance that they year in and year out give they're going to be a one bid league. Mm-hmm. So there's not I, I don't have as a as a one person committee. I don't have the time to re- to really dig too deeply. I look at schedules. I look at numbers. If I can find a game on online or something like that, I will check it out. But for the most part, it's okay. I'm gonna it's a, this is a plug in the league champ and move on because we know we know just based on history that's what's going to be. Um, now the Ivy takes on a, maybe a little bit different perspective be, from my end because of what was done last year. And in what Harvard has been able to do so far this year, yeah, it all makes sense. I, I guess from your perspective, what are the what is the Power Five lead, or what's the lead with multiple bids that you are paying the most attention to? You feel like you know the least about at this point uh, in terms of moving parts. Uh, the, the 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 league that I, that I of the Power Five that I don't that I haven't seen as much, or that I, I know the, the least about. Um, that's a tough one because I spend <laughs> obviously spend an inordinate amount of my time with those games because a they're the most available sure. and b there and b we have a history of saying these are the teams that are going to be competing for spots and we want to I want to be able to seed them accurately and, um, and and put them on the you know put them on the map properly. Uh, I, I guess my if I had to say that there was one league like that right now. Of the five, maybe the uh, the Big Twelve. I mean, I've seen Baylor plenty. I think most people, a lot of people, have, and I've seen Texas a lot, um, but I haven't seen. I saw. I was able to see Oklahoma State live once, which was nice. Um, I've seen just. I've seen like chunks of Iowa State, but I haven't seen. I've seen one one entire game, and then and then bits of other games. Um, but in terms of yeah, in terms I guess if you, if you wanted to rank teams that I'm that I've seen the most so far this year, I probably put the Big Twelve at the in the five spot. Yeah. Um, but but needless to say, I have seen uh, a bunch of games from a, a, a myriad of teams. I've seen Oklahoma live, and I've seen Oklahoma on TV a bunch. I, I was able to see Oklahoma live twice, which is a, kind of unusual for just a non-conference season. And I was able to see Kansas State um, in, in a couple of full games as well. But the bottom of the league, I haven't seen too much of. 
Um, and I guess that, as I said, I guess that would probably put the Big 12 on the lower end of that. I guess. I, it's a challenge to find anything that you're, you're not an expert in. So I appreciate <laughs> you taking all the time that you do. Uh, any plans coming up to be uh, lecturing in the bracketology class uh, with Professor Lenardi? Uh, unfortunately, no plans. I've, uh, you know, and I'm always willing to learn too. So maybe instead of lecturing, maybe I could sit in and, you know, monitor the class a little bit. Um, you know what, here's the irony of that. I, he does it, he does an online version and I, I, we're we're a little separated by geography now. So it would be a little hard for me to actually get there and pull up the desk and, and, and sit in and listen and maybe guest lecture every here, here, here and then. But, um, the actual process of doing the job of bracketologist is really prevents me from having enough time to go and do uh, and, or monitor his course uh, online because I have to, I could sit at a computer and, and do Joe's online course, or I could sit at, uh, sit at multiple computers and TV screens and watch a bunch of games. I'm, I'm always going to opt for the watch a bunch of games thing because, well, of two things. It's, it's part of the, the duty of bracketologist, and I, I love basketball. Right. So, um, so there's the irony. I don't have time to do the bracketology class or be any part of it because of bracketology. No offense to Joe, but I, w- I would pick the games too. Well, <laughs> I, I, listen, I appreciate you taking the time. I will make a fearless prediction. And say that just like last year, you can go ahead and get every team right uh, in in the bracket as well. And I will make one more long-term prediction, which is that my daughters are six and two. By the time they are of college age, that St. Joe's will offer a bracketology major. I look forward to having them take the classes and have you and Joe teaching. And uh, I think that is long overdue. Today, the dictionary. Tomorrow, the world. Charlie Cream, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thanks, Howard. It was a pleasure. And a reminder to everyone listening, you can follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB. Go ahead and like us on Facebook, Locked On Women's Basketball, or make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcast listen of choice. My name is Howard Meddahl, wishing you a very good day.